This is the Real Estate Investing Abundance Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Allen. I just want to take a moment to introduce you to our company, Steed Talker Capital. Steed Talker Capital is a real estate investment firm. If you'd like to learn more about real estate investing, head over to our website, steedtucker.com. And while you're there, take a moment to get your one-page guide to the 10 Steps to Passive Real Estate Investing. Downloading this PDF will also enroll you in our Enlightened Investor Circle. And by enrolling in the Enlightened Investor Circle, you'll be the first to know about any new investment opportunities that we are getting involved with. Look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy today's show. Hello, enlightened investors. Welcome back to Real Estate Investing Abundance. I'm your host, Dr. Allen, and we are looking forward to exploring the fast path to financial freedom with our guest, Michael Elefante, who did it in 12 months. Michael is a real estate investor, short-term rental expert, and entrepreneur. Michael owns seven short-term rentals that do over $1 million per year, and he owns and operates multiple seven-figure businesses. Welcome, Michael, to the show, and tell us about a memorable experience that helped you to be who you are today. Hey, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. Honestly, there's a lot to come to mind, but one in specific that helped me leapfrog my way into really my interest into real estate in general and wanting to achieve financial freedom at a younger age. And that was my first full-time job after college. I was a college athlete. So once that career came to a screaming halt, I had to figure out what I was going to do next and what I was going to be passionate about. So I got this job. I was cold calling doing business development for a tech company knew knew nothing about it and just remember the first week you know go go make some calls 70 to 100 dials a day and i just remember one specific day just driving home to my little apartment i was saving like 200 bucks a month and i was like this can't be it you know i just felt numb yeah. uh, is the only way i can describe it, it wasn't de- depression or anything like that but it was i just felt numb and i just felt like this emptiness inside of me and i was like man if only i could make more money you know you know, that was the idea. I ended up making more money, but still didn't feel any type of fulfillment. Still felt that numb feeling, um, which ultimately led me to real estate. But that was the initial memorable experience that got me to start the process to get to that light bulb moment, which was investing into real yeah. estate and achieving financial freedom at a younger age. Yeah, I can understand that numb feeling. When you're doing uh, something that just doesn't fulfill who you are, it is a, it's a cold. It's a cold and numb feeling. Well, tell us a little bit about that. You said your college athletic program came to a screeching halt. What happened with that? Uh, well, I graduated and I actually, to back the story up even further, I'd actually redshirted a year. Uh, I pitched that I tore my UCL um, and had to sit out a year. So I redshirted. And when I graduated in 2015, I had to make that. I was hoping to get drafted, actually, but I the injury came back at the end of that year, um, so it didn't get drafted. So I had to figure out. All right, I graduated with a finance degree from Yale University, in North Carolina. Do I go apply for jobs, or do I maybe go back and utilize my last year of eligibility and play? So I decided to go down to Florida and live at one of my teammates' houses, and I was like, all right, well. Maybe I'll go back and play, but let me let me figure it out. So I started applying for jobs, part-time jobs. I was working a sales gig that was commission only. I was pre-selling this product called Hulix Medical 
awful product, didn't make a single sale, made no money. So I was like, I need to make some money this summer. I applied for like 15 jobs. I had a service industry background. The only two companies that interviewed me were Chipotle and Dunkin' Donuts. So here I am at these interviews with people that are like in high school or don't even have their GED. And I have a 3.4 GPA from one of the best business schools in the Southeast. And I'm like, what am I doing? Chipotle didn't even hire me. Dunkin' Donuts, I was working for like 7.35 an hour, pouring coffee at 5 a.m. I'd go work out at the baseball facility and ultimately decided to to go back to school one more. So played another year, still didn't get drafted. And then just that was it coming to a halt. It was, all right, well, now I got to figure out what I want to do. So I just started applying for jobs and heard you could make money in sales and tech was a good industry to be in and still is in my opinion. Um, So I just kind of took the first job offer I had uh, in front of me. Well, interesting trajectory. So here you are working at this job that is bringing you no fulfillment. How did you find your way to real estate? <laughs> Funny enough, um, when I when when I was sitting in the car that day, you know, I think the next week I started downloading all these podcasts, passive income, real estate, bigger pockets, those types of things. Started reading a bunch of books. I was open to a lot of different types of ideas, but none of them made sense to me at the time. I didn't know how to make money online. I was just like that still fell over my head. So real estate was like the one tangible thing that made sense. You can buy a property, you can leverage the bank's money, put a tenant in there, and then rent it out, and then the margin is your cash flow. I was like, okay, that makes sense. If I have enough properties, I can make enough money to where I don't have to go to my job every day. I'm financially free. So for me, it was just the process of elimination. And it took me a few years of just kind of focusing on my income because I knew I needed to make more in order to accelerate my path of in- investing quicker. So I I got a promotion like seven months into my job to inside sales. I changed jobs several times actually the next few years to boost my income and, and didn't really boost my expenses a ton during that time. So I was able to save up for that first. In that process, I started to learn about short-term rentals, which I'm glad I didn't start investing in long-term rentals sooner because with short-term rentals, I was like, okay, it might take me one to three properties to truly become financially free because a single property can cash for you several thousand a month. And um, a long-term rental, just going off like the bigger pockets info, 200 bucks a door, 500 bucks a door cash flow a month. I'm like, man, I might need like 30 to 50 properties to hit 10K a month cash flow. How long is that going to take me? You know, I know there's people out there that have done that in a quick time frame, but that's what triggered the thought, like, I'm going to do short-term rentals and then never look back after that. So we got our first property at the end of 2019. So that was three years after that that numb feeling sitting in the car. Mm-hmm. That was 2016, mm-hmm. got our first property at the end of 2019. I mean, that seems like a long time, but it really truly isn't. But you got <laughs> your first uh, property and you say it took you 12 months, I guess, from that point in time to find your financial freedom ticket there. Tell us about that uh, trajectory. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, it would have been sooner, but at the end of 2019 is right before 2020. And we all know what happened in 2020. So my first property that I bought with my wife was in Nashville, Tennessee. Tour is still a great place to invest, in my opinion. And we launched it in December of 2019. And in March, we were we were scheduled to make 7,000 net cash flow in a single month in March. And then we had like $40,000 in cancellations come in overnight when COVID came and hit the US um, wow. in, in that month. We were still all in. I was probably more optimistic than a lot of people out there. I was like, oh, this won't last long and people will still travel. So uh, we liquidated our retirement accounts, 401k, IRA, got our second unit, which was a turnkey property also in Nashville. And Nashville was you know, slow for 2020. Then it picked back up like a few months into 2021. So we still were net positive cash flow. 
But each of those properties cash flow us over 6,000 a month today, but that first 12 months wasn't great. So we pivoted to the Smoky Mountains because we saw tourism shift from urban areas because people didn't want to wear masks. They didn't want to be confined to their place. So they were like, well, or maybe they didn't want to be around people. So they were like, let me go to these urban, uh, excuse me, the vacation markets, mountains, beaches, lakes. They were slammed. After the two months of lockdowns from like May onward, they were just, Mm -hmm. it was crazy. Record daily rates, record occupancy. So we got our first mountain property. That place instantly booked up. And I think it was November, we cash flowed like 15 grand around there in December, somewhere similar uh, on three properties. And two of them were still not even you know, doing that well. So that was the aha moment. I was like, oh my gosh, our 10-year goal of financial freedom, we kind of hit it in in the first year. I was just flabbergasted, but um, I'm super excited at the same time. Yeah, well, for sure. I'm sure there was a lot to learn in that. I am sure you didn't just go out and just buy the first property out there and say, oh, we're going to turn this into an Airbnb. So what all did you go through to, uh, you You listened to podcasts and different things. How did you educate yourself on determining that you're going short term? And once you determined that, what all did you have to accumulate in terms of knowledge and expertise? Yeah, for sure. Honestly, everything I know now, I wish I knew earlier on. I probably would <laughs> wish I would have paid for mentorship early on, but there wasn't a ton of people doing Airbnb mentorship at the time. So I just consumed some info online on YouTube, but ultimately it was just trial and error. So for me, I wanted to make sure it was an educated decision on the investment. So I had to understand on paper or in a spreadsheet, the numbers had to make sense. So mm-hmm. what triggered it was we stayed in a short-term rental in an Airbnb in Nashville when we went to visit and look at houses to buy before we moved there. And I was like, what are we paying for this little place? And it was a great little like condo. And I was like, man, what is their mortgage? Okay. What about their expenses? And I started to like, look at these numbers, look at comps online. And I was like, there's no way they're making this much money. And it turns out they were. And I was like, this is nuts. So for me, I just built a little spreadsheet that put in the investment details. I looked at AirDNA, found comps uh, local to the subject property I was personally looking at, ultimately bought, and saw what they were charging per night and what the occupancy rate was, and then what my operating expenses would be. And it just spat out my cash flow. And that is what made sense to me. It just was tangible. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, if I can hit this on a very conservative forecast, this is my upside is substantial. My downside is very limited. So I felt pretty safe in the investment. Ultimately, that's how we did it. It was just like gather as much data and information, which is out there in the marketplace. You can go on AirDNA, directly on Airbnb and find comps and, and just plug it into a spreadsheet and keep it super simple. And if the numbers make sense for me, the deal makes sense. So you got the numbers down. What about operations? Mm, that's something that took me a longer time to figure out. So number one thing you need to do is hire local cleaners, which we did out of the gate, uh, but we didn't have a great system in place. Um, we were, you know, from what I remember, we were still sending them our our reservations, you know, with one property, it's not a big deal. Once you scale to multiple, you have to leverage tech. And this is the one cool thing about this industry that is democratized short-term rentals for the everyday investor. Because 10, 15 plus years ago, you have to have a local PM, property manager with an office with keys, maybe cleaners on staff, right? You would go check into your the office and then they'd bring you to your property. Now everything is like remote check-in. I can automate 90% of the guest messaging through property management software. I can automate my pricing through dynamic pricing solutions such as Price Labs or Wheelhouse. And then I could automate my cleaners and the scheduling with them using something like Turno or Resort Cleaning. So most of my ops are covered. And that that is the biggest thing and it's something I did not actually adopt until we got our third property, believe it or not. Kind of forced into it. I'm like, what am I doing? This is crazy. I'm copying and pasting check-in instructions. What a waste of time. These tools are so cheap and so efficient. Um, so yeah, if you guys are just starting, use that from the get-go. It made us more efficient with our time. Uh, we were working maybe two to three hours a week on three or four properties. 
out of the gate. So as far as what we were making and relative, and we were self-managing without VAs at the time too. So it's like a no-brainer to use the the tech stack. For sure. Yeah. Well, what what is your current revenue and cash flow on your rental portfolio at this time? Uh, have, last what, month, seven is that? Yeah, we have seven. We just launched our seventh uh, last week, and that's our biggest one. We've gotten some bookings at fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars a night so far. So it, it's like really performing well. But our six properties, we launched two of those, kind of a third of the way through twenty twenty two. Those did about nine hundred k in revenue. We cash flowed like three sixty five ish last year. This year, we're projected to do one point two to one point five on seven properties and our cash flow sh- should be north of half a million. Wow. So the margins, yeah, the cash flow margin is substantial with short-term rentals. If you do the right thing and by the right thing, not just the research on like ADRs and occupancy rates, but mm-hmm. you know, if you want longevity in this industry, you have to have great design and amenities and stand out from your competition. That's how you get people to pay $2,000 a night for a higher end place versus, you know, you never want to compete on price long-term in my opinion. Enlightened investors, if you haven't done so already, be sure and click that like button and also click that share so others can take advantage of the content. And finally, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single one of our upcoming episodes. Yeah, I mean, that's always been my concern about short-term rental is it's so easy to get into it. And it would seem to me like the competition would be pretty stiff, particularly at the lower end of that. But you've you've gone to the higher end of that. And so you're really essentially setting your prices on the exclusive properties. Is that correct? You know, one of them, yes. One of them is, you know, we have like a pickleball and basketball sport court, a four-hole putt-putt course, like all these crazy amenities. That was the most recent one. That one will be the number one property in Asheville, North Carolina. I have no doubt about it, just based on our competition. The other ones though, a lot of them are standard property. What we do is we do a ton of research on what are the top performing properties in that respective market? What amenities do they have? What design do they have? What location are they in? Do they have a view? Do they have a hot tub? And then we start to look at the revenue potential and then we find properties that are close by that aren't necessarily you know, priced at a luxury property price, but then we do what we can to add fun design, accent walls, interactive murals, outdoor spaces, you know, game rooms, those types of things to compete mm-hmm. with those higher end properties. So they're not even necessarily luxury properties. They're, we just do such a good job on the setup design. And then on the back end, we, we price so effectively to get premium rates on high demand days. And then we get bookings on low demand days because we actually lower our prices below our competition. So it's a balancing act, um, but that's how we've been able to really squeeze as much possible cash flow out of each property that we have. What's the optimum? Fewer vacancies or better pricing? It's a combination of both. You know, I I don't need to be a hundred percent occupied. That usually means that you're below market rent, um, but I also don't want to feel good about myself getting a thousand dollars a night, but only being booked Friday and Saturday nights, and then never getting booked the other nights. So optimal thing to do is focus on the revenue and the total cash on cash return that that property will do. So how can I generate the highest possible revenue? Now, there is some caveat to that. So if I had the choice, if I could make the same revenue, but be booked slightly more, a higher occupancy, a lower daily rate, personally, I'd probably be rather that than have a higher daily rate and a much lower occupancy. And the reason I say that is because it's very competitive on OTAs, online travel agencies like Airbnb and Verbo. And a lot of their algorithm has to do right with what's going to help promote properties that's going to limit the time it takes a traveler to find what they're looking for and ultimately click pay because that's mm-hmm. what keeps them on their platform versus going somewhere else verbo expedia booking.com those sites 
So you have to pay attention to those analytics, which are readily available for you on Airbnb and see what are my impressions like? What are my clicks like? What are my conversions like? And if 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 I have a higher occupancy, typically, you know, I'm probably going to have more bookings, more reviews, and that's going to help the algorithm show me to more people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people are going to perceive decently high pricing, a lot of positive, high quantity of positive reviews with less availability with value. Mm-hmm. So then more people might be more inclined to book because that's a rare find technically. So there's some caveat to that, but at the end of the day, you know, you're just trying to, you're trying to maximize the cash flow you get out of each property. But yeah. for that, for those reasons, you know, it might be good to focus on occupancy in those, in that specific scenario. Well, you mentioned uh, reviews and ratings. I'm sure you, you shoot for the highest and best ratings on all of your properties and keep them in the appropriate operating condition to maintain that, but nobody's going to strike that out a hundred percent. What do you do with bad ratings? Yeah, it's really tough. You know, it's it's not so much what we do with bad ratings. It's how do we how do we limit negative reviews? And sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes a guest you never hear from them, and they say they had a the wonderful stay. They can't wait to stay there again. Four star, and it's like, what the hell? I you know, some people are just in their mind a five star is like white glove treatment. You blew me away. So you have to set the expectations out of the gate or upon checkout. You know, if there's something, you know, you I, we send like. Five star, four star, three star, two and one, and then each next to each of those stars, we say what what it means. Five stars like everything went really well, you know, blah blah blah. Four stars like we had a couple major disturbances during our stay, and there was a lack of response from our host. So mm-hmm. it puts in their mind, okay, well the host responded even though we had issues. So I'm, I'm probably still willing to leave a five. The second thing we do, assuming the guest didn't destroy the place. Um, we leave everyone a five-star review and we tell them we left them a five-star review and we ask them to return the favor as long as they feel they had a decent stay. And if there was anything negative about their stay, please message us privately so we can ad- ensure that we see it and address it. So you'd be surprised how many people leave a five-star, then leave a long private note and just get nitpicky. But that's good feedback for us. We need to relay that mm-hmm. to our cleaners and they can go take care of it or our team does. But those two things have allowed us to have substantial you know, amounts of five five-star reviews. Um, mm-hmm. And it's important. You know, I think only 19 or 20%, I may be wrong, of, of operators on Airbnb are considered super hosts. And there's a few criteria to that. One is an average review rating across all your properties of 4.8 or higher, which in my opinion, shouldn't be hard to get, but a lot of people are not there. Two, you need to have like a certain response time to guess. And then three is you have to have a less than like 1% cancellation rate on guests or something like that, where you cancel on them. You have other businesses. What uh, what other businesses do you operate? I have a coaching business, which I was sharing a lot of free content with what I was learning and to help other people also be successful because it has certainly changed my life investing in these types of properties. So I was actually taking free coaching calls for probably a year until people were encouraging me, hey, I would pay for this. Can you just put it all out there? So I built a, a mentorship and coaching program, BNB Investor Academy. That is my biggest business that I f- and I focus on the most. Um, we've taught over a thousand people how to do this and uh, implement the same strategies and hopefully help them be more successful and do it in a shorter period of time than it took me. Um, the second one, and very vertically integrated, as you'll notice, second one is home team vacation rentals. There's a lot of really bad property managers out there that overcharge and underdeliver. So they may be charging 30 to 40% of your gross revenue, and they may still be handing out physical keys, not using dynamic pricing, not listing on all the OTAs, just doing direct booking. And I've seen people where we take their properties off of those sites, not to name them, and we've doubled their revenue. 
and charge less. It's it's fascinating. It's crazy to me. So that's why I'm such a big proponent. I teach people to self-manage, but if they are, when they're ready to outsource, they can work with home team vacation rentals and and we'll implement the same strategies that we do to be successful. So that that's been great. We're about to cross 100 properties under management in less than a year. So it's been awesome, awesome growth. The last one, uh, well, not the last one, but the next one is summer led designs. Again, very vertically integrated. So some of the one couple that I coached, his, uh, Logan and his wife, Bree. Bree happens to be a very good marketer and have some background in interior design. And her best friend is an interior designer by trade. So they started designing properties for my clients. And I was like, hey, what if we formalize this business? And it's just exploded. Crazy, crazy numbers and, and the success they've brought their clients to. Because design mm-hmm. is such an important piece of short-term rentals. And it's the most difficult aspect to get right when you're doing it on your own. So we design remote or in-person vacation rentals from coast to coast in the USA. Um, and then there's one other business, which I'm probably going to announce soon, but um, it's really just going to be more of a resource hub online. So we don't have to dive too far into that one today. Well, tell us how they can get in touch with you to take advantage of the mentoring and coaching. Yeah, for sure. So bnbinvestoracademy.com is the best place. And um, there's some information there. You can also book a free consultation call with my team. So highly encourage everyone to do that. And then anything else, just shoot me a, a direct message on Instagram. I respond to all DMs there. Um, and that's just at Elefante 6 Well, Michael, how can people get started if they just don't really have a wad of money or they just don't have any money at all? How did they get started? Yeah. So there's some really fascinating strategies, which I wish I learned about faster and deployed sooner before just saving up just to buy a property in short-term rentals. One is kind of the obvious, right? The elephant in the room. You can always partner with somebody who has money, which I do encourage people to do. We can help you get started, learn the industry faster, get into some cash flow and scale together. But the next one, which is an amazing strategy, if you have at least like 10 grand, is doing rental arbitrage. Now, it is it is difficult to network and know what to say to landlords, but basically you are renting an apartment, condo, or single family home from a landlord and you are garnering their permission to sublet it at your discretion. So you're going to furnish it. So spend a few thousand dollars to furnish a unit, and then you rent it out on Airbnb. And the revenue minus your operating expenses minus your rent is your cash flow. So pure cash flow play, no equity, but no down payment, no closing costs, no credit needed. That is an amazing way to snowball cash flow. And your return can be, I have students doing 100 to 300% ROI on dollars invested. It's really crazy. So if you can invest 10 or 20K and net two to 3K a month, it doesn't take you but a few months to get your second unit. And now you got 2X the cash flow and get your third, fourth. So mm-hmm. the snowball effect. The last one is co-hosting. Um, and this is actually how Home Team Vacation Rentals was founded. One of my early students or, or clients, if you will, in the academy, Elliot Caldwell, he got a few properties on his own, partnered with somebody, did an arbitrage deal. And he was like, well, I'm out of funds, but I want to keep going. So he started reaching out to other homeowners in the same market he was in that were using big box PMs or legacy property managers that were really doing a bad job. And he's like, hey, look at my revenue. And they they were like, that's bullshit. No way. And he's like, no, seriously, he showed them his, his software that showed the, the P&L. And they're like, that's crazy. You're doing 2x what we're doing. And we have the same property, the same cabin. And so mm-hmm. it was a no brainer. They're like, yeah, I'll, I'll come in. I'll come in, uh, move my property to you and you're going to charge me less. So I encourage people to do that you know, mm-hmm. network with people, go to long-term real estate investors and say, Hey, what if you furnish your property and I'll, I'll design it and I'll manage it um, for, you know, 10, 15, 20% and you'll make more money as the owner. And then I'll just get money to manage it. So mm-hmm. $0 out of pocket, just a lot of effort networking and hustle. So there's, there's lots of good ways to get started in the space. 
Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, I'm really amazed at the profits you're making from this. I I had no idea it was that、uh, lucrative a、uh, business, and I'm sure probably for most people it probably isn't. You have to do you have to do it right and play the game right to make these kinds of profits. Well, Michael, what is what has been your biggest challenge in your long term rentals, and how did you overcome that, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for the short-term rentals, honestly, early on, was just figuring out what tech stack to use and then how to scale. Because if you're you're basically a solopreneur until you're forced, you know, you hit a wall and you have to either hire people or outsource to become more of an entrepreneur and true investor and make it make it a sustainable, you know, relatively passive source of income. So for me, it was how do I outsource things that initially I was holding really tight to my chest. So that was first with software and then with people. Eventually, so you'll know when that time is when you're like, "Oh man, I feel like I'm working another job again," or you know, "I can't scale further. I just can't take on another property because I don't have the bandwidth." At that point in time, you need to figure out what to outsource first. To, you know, what are you spending the most time with, and、mm-hmm. and take that off your plate. We've talked about all the wonderful things with this. What are the biggest risks? Yeah, biz- biggest risk initially、uh, on the monetary side is if you don't take the time to do appropriate research and. You know, find a property and then execute on a strategy. If you're kind of shooting in the dark there, blindfolded, you could be in for a very rude awakening. If you overpay for a property and you don't get booked because you know you looked at the whole market and you thought your occupancy was going to be seventy percent, but little did you know that one zip code can differ quite drastically from another.、Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's information out there on sites like Your DNA that can tell you that zip code to zip code. So if you don't understand the numbers behind it and do adequate research. And have a fairly conservative forecast, and ensure that you do a low, medium, high forecast. Then, yeah, you 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 could end up breaking even or losing money, and you never want to lose money, right? I think it's Warren Buffett's rule: rule number one, don't lose money; rule number two, don't forget rule number one.、Um, <laughs> so that's the biggest thing. And on the back end, it's don't try to take on too much yourself. You know, a lot of people are like, well. I'll just clean my property if I live by it because I'll save an extra two hundred bucks and pocket it. You got to get into a money making mindset and out of a money saving mindset. So the sooner you start to outsource those things, the more time you're gonna, the less time you're gonna spend, you know, paddling on the boat, and the more time you'll spend driving and seeing what's ahead and being able to get there faster and more efficiently. Well, excellent advice, wonderful information. It has been a pleasure having you with us, Michael. Fascinating topic. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Enlightened investors, don't go yet. I have just a couple of quick requests. You know the drill: like, share, and subscribe. But we also need your help to build our audience, so please go to your favorite podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. I'll be most grateful. Until next time, prosper and live abundantly. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steed Talker Capital. A company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steed Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steed Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at SteedTalker.com.